Hey everyone, I'm really excited about this episode that we have for you. Um, so Ryan and I start out talking about the role of technology in recorded music, but we quickly get into a really interesting conversation about how sound, or really any other sense, can alter the state of the human brain and can be used to manipulate the, the human brain. We get into some really interesting cross-references with other sensory experiences. Uh, so I'm really excited about this episode. And without further ado, let's get right to it after a word from today's sponsor. Bill Swirsky's Guitar Emporium, located in Deer Lake, Illinois. Come by for the finest selection of electric and acoustic guitars. Well, actually, not really acoustic guitars. Electric or better, we all know that. You can't play a WAP pedal with an acoustic guitar, am I right? Well, come by and ascend into guitar greatness. Just step on a WAP pedal with one of our finest electric guitars, and you will immediately start glowing and play like the likes of Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, and Eric Johnson, Paul Gilbert, that other guy. Bill Swirsky's Electric Guitar Emporium. Wah! All right, so... Ryan, you know, as you know, we've I've started to um, play around with recording, um, you know, playing in in a band again and, and messing around with recording and getting really into the nuts and bolts of it myself this time around. And there's so many options at every step of the way to use technology to modify the sound of any kind of sound input. So, you know, if we take a um, voice, for instance, you can, you can manipulate so much through the use of the microphone, through the use of effects after, um, you know, after the voice is recorded to where the, the recording sits um, in terms of a, a sonic landscape, where it sits in the actual music itself. And I know in talking with you over the years that you know, there's almost always some kind of technology manipulation applied to recorded music today. But there also is a wonderful quality to live acoustic music being played and listening to something live with no kind of electronic amplification, no manipulation whatsoever. So my question is, to what extent should a music artist or an audio engineer use technology to modify the sound of a recorded piece of music? Mm. Well, I would say to the nth degree, uh, musicians, recording artists, audio engineers, producers, whoever we're talking about, they should take it to that degree. Here's what I'm saying. As far as is necessary to achieve the creative vision, you're, you know, capturing it sonically on a record, in this case digital, you know, zeros and ones in a computer, and then be able to reproduce that to the fullest, to fully express the artistic ideas um, as well as possible, whatever step it takes to get you there, that's how far it needs to go, in my opinion. Now, I think... It's a good philosophical question because if we're talking like a bluegrass band, let's say, who's doing a live recording in a studio where all the musicians are playing together at the same time, all the mics are live, I think there's going to be just an inherent different philosophy about what to do with the recorded sound. So you're going to have a a wide range of what's acceptable and what should and shouldn't be done in any given situation based on context. 
I mean, in your own, you know, I know a little bit about the projects you're up to. Like, what what are the big areas where you've realized, man, there is so much ability to control sound here? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the the easiest way to look at it is voice. Um, it, you know, I, I remember, I think you were the one who showed me um, a, a, a clip of the Linkin Park singer, um, you know, singing a Linkin Park song and showing the raw audio or listening to the raw audio without any sort of manipulation. And it sounds so bad. Um, so you can just see how much, how much manipulation goes into, um, potentially goes into that with, with drumming too, you know, here's, so here's a good example. Um, and I think an example that kind of supports using technology to get a great sound. Um, something that, you know, if you've ever been in a live band, um, if you've ever played music in a live band, uh, and I'm talking specifically a rock band type where you have, you know, a drum set, acoustic, or, uh, sorry, electric guitars with amplifiers. One of the first things you run into uh, when you get started in that is it is so difficult to get the sound that you want. And what what I mean by want is if you're growing up listening to album music, you want that sort of crystal clear sort of sound where you hear all the different components and you can hear them well um, individually and in, in conjunction with the whole larger performance. Mm-hmm. And then you get into a garage and you start playing and it sounds terrible. It's a wall of sound. <laughs> yep. Everything is at different levels. I remember, you know, playing my my drum kit when when we finally started getting bigger, more powerful amps, playing, you know, the drum kit and and hitting something, hitting the, hitting a tom, which is such a loud and resonant sound and not you know, feeling the weight, feeling the connection, the contact of hitting it and not hearing anything because there's so much other noise in the room. Yeah. It's like overwhelming, Um, right? In those moments. Right. And it makes total sense because, you know, as I'm sure you'll explain later on, uh, you're dealing with a ton of very, very loud sounds and you're not really bothering to understand the level setting and, and where all of those individual components sit. And that's really what discourages a lot of people um, when they're starting out in rock bands is this sounds terrible. There are so many factors to consider to get a good sound and, and how do you do that? The group I'm in now, um, we we actually, the, the first show we played um, out of necessity was a, a sort of a stripped down electronic set. So we, we had a, a noise constraint. Um, and so we actually had, you know, a PA amplifier that had the bass vocals and my electronic drum kit coming out of it. And then we had smaller guitar amps. And I've never had, a, you know, when I, in terms of playing live, I've never had sound that sounded so close to what you would hear from a record because you could hear, you had so much more control over all the levels and you could hear every component together, but also separately. I mean, it really sounded like we were playing CD quality. I see that boy. That's Yikes. CD um, quality <laughs> sounds right here. Come one, come all. <laughs> Um, 
it, it, it sounds like a professional recording or it sounded as close to a professional recording as I've ever experienced. And it was really, really cool. And so that was something where I said, wow, you know, this is, this is how you properly use technology. And, and just to, to jump back a little bit, I think I've always been on the side of thinking that too much or, or really certain types of technological manipulation, sound manipulation were a bad thing. You know, my, my opinion is that they were a bad thing because, you know, and, and I think maybe a lot of that was, <laughs> I don't want to say misguided, but um, just this idea that there was a purity let's say sure. to, to acoustic unmanipulated sound and, and using all of these, these tools to manipulate the sound was, was destroying a purity of the music. Right. It was, uh, um, wasn't as authentic if you did it that way. Yeah, there we go. Authenticity. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, millennial buzzword. I love it. <laughs> but, but I, I think that while, you know, what does authenticity mean? And I've really reevaluated that over the last couple of years um, because what is authenticity in a rock band? (laughs) Right. Very little of that is acoustic. You know, a guitar hooked up through an amplifier, that distorted tone is by definition inauthentic. Right? That's a sound that cannot be produced acoustically by banging on strings or hitting things. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, you could have said that about anything. You know, the first person to uh, carve holes into a bone and use make it into a flute, you know? Even then, <laughs> whatever Neanderthal or whoever would have been like, nah, no, no, no. I'm all about real music. If you can sing, that's it. That's all I care about. Right? So, like, if you go back and apply that same argument to other instruments, it, it kind of falls apart pretty quickly. Um but you're, but you're on to something, though. It is a departure, right? So it was new. Like, I remember when Bob Dylan went electric. That was a, such a huge deal for him to plug in an electric guitar and play it that way. Um, because it was a new sound. It was, uh, like, unlike anything we'd ever heard. And obviously, the original guitar amplifiers, kind of the idea was to try and reproduce a guitar sound as cleanly as possible. And then, of course, as soon as something is invented someone else comes along and uses that invention and says, I know you made it to do this, but I'm going to take it a different direction. And because I'd like it, because I enjoy it, um, whatever it is that excites the person about that. And then that's when you get, I mean, it wasn't Jimi Hendrix that did it, but the Jimi Hendrix effect of let's get this Marshall stack cranked all the way, oversaturate the electronics so that we are distorting the sound. So I, I get what you're, I get where you're coming from, right? You want to, authentic to what your idea of music was which for us growing up it was mostly like 70s rock bands where it's kind of like the prototype 60s and 70s rock bands were the prototype for what we wanted to be doing as you know high schoolers so of course they set the bar of authenticity and that's where our bar was set so i think that's where it's interesting the whole authenticity conversation because you could say you know, this one that article I shot you over about how mu- how sound affects you. You could say that humans in architecture have been creating acoustic instruments since the dawn of, you know, since we started building buildings, and eventually even started creating buildings with the intent of creating this specific acoustic. Um, so, I mean, think of any church you've ever been in. 
especially um, if you've had the chance to be in like a acoustically designed one. That space, if you think of that as a like the interior of an acoustic guitar, that space is a very well controlled acoustic place that will, if it's correctly done, either magnify or minimize certain aspects that want to be magnified. So it's kind of pointing out that one, you know, some of these um, chambers that were connected to mysterious sort of religious events, things that would, um, you know, not like a festival, but more like induce people into something, um, an altered state through sound alone. And they would do it through chanting and through music and through drums typically, as, as far as we can tell. But also the spaces they were in would magnify that specific sound of human voices most 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 likely to create the sound that even if there are 10 people in the room it sounds like there's 150 people in the room um so i think that's where you get these early cases of how humans have always realized that our auditory senses while not the primary sense to us humans we rely on it and it can actually really change how our brain functions just from sound i think that's pretty fascinating yeah, and even the realization that you can you can change people's uh, you know you can change how people feel based on the sound, and you can also then change the the way that the sound interacts with the world around it to create a particular sound. Yeah. Hmm. So, so it's almost like. You know, if I if I jump back to, to what I was saying before, my bar for authenticity is, you know, the rock and roll of the 60s and 70s. But that is really heavily manipulative and inauthentic if you rewind the clock back to classical music of the late 19th century. <laughs> oh, yeah, entirely. Um, or, or honestly, um, inauthentic to... Uh, you know, jazz of the 30s, because while that was recorded, it wasn't really manipulated, um, like the, the sound quality itself. And, you know, putting distortion on a guitar probably sounded like futuristic nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Or, or could, could sound like futuristic nonsense to somebody who's, whose authenticity bar was jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's easy to think that your bar is, is, music period and everything else is or anything anything that happens to it is inauthentic but really what you're saying is that this idea the idea that sound could manipulate a mind and thus by manipulating sound you could manipulate a mind is centuries old thousands of years old i think it's just the foundation of music are you know early humans realizing that by singing and maybe learning to sing together that there's that something happens you know we've all had that experience whether it's been at a festival a show um in the opera at a musical whatever it is a sonic experience that's tied to music that because of you being in that room in that particular place and the way the sound hits you and the people you're with and around it there's something that happens to you as a human that's just kind of hard to explain Right, we've all had those intangible experiences around it. So I would imagine from day one that humans were humans, 
that singing, whether it was, you know, just imitating a bird they heard and therefore they kind of, you know, doing a little whistle or something, that it's been tied to that connection of like, this will change me. This can change you. You know, you're feeling sad. I can play you sad music and that'll actually make you feel better, which is kind of funny. But um, it's actually best not to play happy music for someone who's grieving or sad because then you're kind of inflaming their grief. Whereas if you play them sad music, there's been some uh, studies loosely, it's certainly not defined science, but studies that indicate like through the sympathy response of the brain and the way that music can um, suppress or not suppress. Well, yeah, suppress some like higher order thinking and really make the brain actually function to more of an emotional state. You can literally change how someone feels through music. And this process is what we call psychoacoustics, like the psychology of how acoustics affect you. And I've been, I'm fascinated by it because as a former audio engineer, music producer, you would use these effects in a studio setting to manipulate the audio to recreate the semblance of being in a live room, if that makes any sense. Because if you want to talk about authenticity, when you listen to a recording of, let's say, Led Zeppelin, you have to remember that before microphones could record music, you could never, besides writing music down, you could never, sorry, besides writing music down and having memories, you could never reproduce that same event ever, right? It just wasn't possible because we didn't have the recording methods. Then we enabled the ability to be like, hey, if we scratch a, a line into wax and then reproduce that through a gramophone, it'll actually record sound and we can record and then play it back. But then you run into this initial problem of, well, sure, we can record the sound, but when we play it back, it does not sound at all like what it sounded like when it was performed. And then that's where the technical difficulties get in the way. Because the equipment that is there to translate the acoustic phenomena of a human voice in a room and record that so that it can be reproduced in a separate room, maybe across the globe 10 years later on a computer, that technology still hasn't got to the point where it's it functions uh, as diligently, as accurately as human hearing, if you're actually in the room, would function. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I want to ask you to, to dig in on that a little bit, because we, we've talked about this before, um, how trying to emulate a truly live performance is... It, correct me if I'm wrong, but in some ways, even more difficult than creating something that doesn't necessarily have a a, a basis in live sound, right? Yeah. So if you're if you're recording a rock band, you're not necessarily trying to emulate this you know stadium type of sound. You're really creating a different sound that doesn't really exist anywhere else. But trying to record a chamber orchestra, for example, is very is very difficult, um, right? Yeah, and and there's a there's a lot of reasons for it. I think so. Like the first breakdown point is usually this: if you're trying to record music in a way that it feels like you're at a live show or at a live event, the first barrier is usually okay. How do you record? If it's a chamber orchestra, you're probably having the chamber orchestra assemble and perform together, right? That helps because yeah. you have musicians in the room listening to each other in real time, reacting to each other to create music. So there's that measure of everyone was 
performing at the same time. So you have that sense of like, it is a performance. It is not a layering of different layers of recordings. Whereas if you take that, so let's say a rock band and say, okay, we want to sound like we're at that live 500 person venue, you know, kind of intimate venue, pretty cool, a little dingy, s- still smells like cigarette smoke and spilt beer, even though you haven't been able to smoke inside for you know two decades, you know, that sort of place. If you go into the studio and you don't record all at the same time together, the drummer, the bassist, guitarist, the vocalist, whoever is in the band all at the same time, you're initially going to take one step down or make it one step harder for you to make it sound like a live performance. Because simply put, you didn't do it together live. So those little flubs, those little imperfections, those little nuances aren't going to come through. Um, So it's just immediately going to be really difficult. Okay, let's say you don't care about that you still want the polished sound you can get out of being able to do multiple takes of a recording to really dial in that perfect take then you start coming into another problem where let's let's just use actually my recording setup what i'm doing right now i'm sitting in my bedroom with a blanket hung up on the wall behind me to reduce reflections off that wall to the microphone and then I have blankets everywhere else i even have this thing it's called a reflection filter we won't get into it but basically they control all of the the sound of my voice when it bounces off the ceiling, off to the wall to the right of me, left of me, behind me, and in front of me. My voice will bounce off and then hit this microphone that's in front of me at a, at a slightly different time. Let's say seven milliseconds different, right? So now what's important to note here is that this is happening to any human who has fully functioning hearing all the time. Our ears are picking up on the fact that when you walk into a room, your voice will be coming off of this wall seven milliseconds after your voice, you know, actually is speaking. It's a really weird way to explain that a microphone that I set up to reduce as many reflections as possible to try and give this really pure tone of my voice, so sultry and rich, it's really actually also disarticulating it from its environment is what I'm doing. So then we run into this problem of, okay, we're in post, you listen to it, it sounds good for a podcast, because that's what you want. You just want a voice that's kind of plugged into your ears directly. But again, if we go back to our rock music example, where you're trying to sound live, now you've got the vocalist who has this great, perfect performance vocal take, but it sounds dead, it sounds flat, because there is no live, there's no reflections off the walls. There's nothing. So, now to make it sound like you're in that you know, dance hall, smells like smoke, now you have to add in other sounds, uh, reverb typically, delay, uh, other manipulated, ma- manipulative techniques to take that dry sound is what it's called and then make it a wet sound, wet being like the reflections and the ambiance. And that's where you try to make this weird circuitous route to take a re- rock band, put them in a recording studio to make them sound like they're on stage. It's just really hard to do. That's really interesting, though, especially for, you know, for for listeners who who don't really have any idea what we're talking about. Imagine this. That's a perfect way to describe it. This in your ear NPR type of of sound that our voices have right now. You wouldn't want to hear this over music. It, It wouldn't you know, it would sound it would sound like there's a rock band in the back and then NPR in the in the vocals. Sure. <laughs> you know, you want you want the vocals to sound exactly like you said, like you're on stage or you're in a dingy bar. 
Um, mm-hmm. Unless you're Gil wh- Scott Heron, and then in which case you're doing poetry over music. So then you do want that close sound. You know, so it, again, it kind of goes back to the original question. What is the end goal? Then I can, then we can talk about how to actually, how much manipulation is required. Do you, do you think that the, the, so when you are, when you're, when you're talking about recording any kind of music, I know you're thinking about what the end product needs to be. Do you think that the way that especially recording equipment and and technology has evolved that somebody like me who can also figure out how to do this, but doesn't really have the background necessarily. I kind of default to some of this stuff. Of course you put reverb on vocals. That's just what you do. Um, not really thinking about what I want the end product to be. Do you think that, most music that's produced has that level of thought going into it? Or is it just, we've created this new baseline of this is how you record a song? Um, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, so from my experiences working with musicians and I mean, really, I would extend this to any creative endeavor. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be music. It could be the kitchen. It could be a boardroom meeting. If you find your creativity is in a boardroom, um, it's being assembled on the fly. It's being built as you go. It's a journey that you're um, you're walking down, and you're building this. You're crafting this song, and it may you may start in one place and think this is where I want the song to be, and then you start actually recording it, and then little by little, as creative moments and sparks and collaborations come together you actually end up in a very different position just because of the nature of actually recording itself. So that's why another reason we're trying to make that live stage sound through recording is really tricky because as soon as you get in the recording studio with all those toys, it's really easy to lose your focus and stray from it, which might be the coolest thing ever. You know, you might generate a really cool, exciting sound and song that never would have happened before. But then you also have to recognize we left our original plan, which was to sound like a live band in a dingy, smelly hall. What I'm what I'm trying to get at is this this idea of should, you know, should music be one way or the other? And what you just said is sort of a perfect example of, of no, there is no should, right? You know, you, you have an idea that you want to replicate a live sound. You get into a studio where it's the opposite of live sound. And even though you intended to replicate it, you came up with something even more interesting. And if the purpose of, of music and sound is to create a feeling in the listener and you've created this new manipulated manipulated sound that even though it's not what you intended still gets you to still still gets the listener to feel what you want them to feel or to feel something completely different or it's dynamic enough to make different people feel different things so there is really no should um the reason that i that i get there though is i had an interesting experience the other day where um, we, so, so the guys that I play music with, we have a studio set up at one of the houses. Um, but we were over at my house, uh, just grilling and just having a, uh, 
you know, party. And we wanted to play some music, but we don't have any of the equipment here. So we took out acoustic guitars and a djembe, which is a really, really interesting instrument that I want to talk about in a second, uh, but sat out on the porch and played acoustically, sang acoustically, drummed acoustically. And it's such a beautiful, encompassing sound mm-hmm. that you just can't get from any piece of recorded music. Mm-hmm. And what's strange is that that used to just be the natural way to hear music. And now it's almost shocking because you just don't hear music like that. It was really revelatory for everybody there just how how cool it sounded. <laughs> and you could go to different places on the porch and hear different kind of music because you're essentially adjusting the levels yourself and you know it's all around you and the wind would blow and distort the sound. It's just it was it was really it was really amazing yeah. and well, you're also throwing a whole nother aspect in there, which is the other f- four of the five senses are being utilized. You know, if you're listening to a recording, sure, you're probably, like in my case, I'd be sitting in my bedroom and it smells like my bedroom would smell. And the air temp is just so. And that's fine. But it's doesn't. it's not the environment that the recording happened in. So when you're sitting on that porch... You got the sweet smell of that fall Midwest air coming in. Uh, probably a nice, chill, crisp evening is what I'm imagining in my head. I'm hoping there was a fo- there was a fire, and <laughs> like I'm making up all these things in my head that you experienced in real time. And when you multiply, not multiply, but when you compound all those different factors together, oh, it's transporting. It's something so different than even if you had the best recording equipment the best recording engineer the best recording studio and you tried to replicate that still wouldn't come close no but if you did you could put it in the ears of listeners who were in completely different environments a beautiful sunny day in california sitting on the beach everybody here at that party could not transport themselves to california because it was you know there were there were all of these other sensory experiences that were beyond just the sound Mm -hmm. so by capturing that sound you can open up feelings and environments and and experiences for people that were never ever possible before Mm -hmm. which did you know that there was a company um called i smell that was trying to sell like early days of internet i think around the 2000s maybe 2006 something like that they had a device that, um, using 128 essential oil or essential aromas, would, could create basically any aroma. And so the idea was, you go to a website and built into the code of the website is, here's what we want our website to smell like. <laughs> here's the exact code. And you go to the website, and there'd just be a little poof, little waft of aroma go, go across your face. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually, you know, that's, that's sounds, really cool. That's pretty fascinating. I, yeah, I mean, it, it's. I, I think we both probably had the same experience of hearing that. You kind of think, okay, okay, that's really ridiculous. But we'll, ha- we'll hang on a minute, <laughs> right? That actually is really interesting. And it, and there are there are other. Um, I can think of a few other other sort of cross functional, cross sensory experiences that are around the world today. Uh, think of. I know Alinea in Chicago and Fat Duck in particular in um, 
Uh, where is yeah? England, I forget something. Where. Sure, yeah. Uh, but Heston Blumenthal and then Grant Atkins at Alinea. Um, so these are these are high end restaurants mm-hmm. that have really, really dove into the idea that a meal can be well, not even can be. I would argue that it is a combination of all five senses. Mm-hmm. Um, and including thought, um, which is in a sense, but, but you know, thought, it, it changes the way that you eat a meal. And Ryan, you and I have talked about this a million times, but if you are, you know, I've, some of the best meals that I've had, the food itself has been pretty mundane, um, a baguette and some cheese. But if you're sitting in a park in France with, you know, a wonderful uh, partner or friend or whoever, that can be one of the best meals of your mm-hmm. life, but a piece of bread and some cheese in your basement on a Tuesday <laughs> is probably a very sad meal. Right. Even if it's the, you know, your favorite cheese in the world, it's still, still pretty sad. <laughs> I'm picturing a block of cheddar just going to town <laughs> on it. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, but it's the experience. Um, and, and you know, the experience of being in, in France is it's just senses, right? It's, it's, you know, hearing French being spoken, it's it's smelling the air that's just distinct to wherever you are, seeing the the sights around you, and what these what these restaurant tours with these chefs are doing is playing around with aroma and playing around with sound. So in Alinea, Alinea has a dish. They had a dish at one point. They changed their menu every day, but they had a dish where they had a pillow filled with aroma of something, say lavender, and poked holes in the pillow and put a plate on top of the pillow, um, with food. So as you're eating, the plate is pressing down on the pillow and it's, um, expelling this lavender aroma. So you're not consuming or tasting lavender, but it is completely changing how you are tasting that dish, right? Because it's, it's involving your other senses. And Heston Blumenthal had a dish where you're eating an, o- uh, an oyster and you're listening to the sounds of the ocean. Oh, which, yeah. Which, again, is changing your that perception. That was really slick. Because what, what it was, they, they had, this is back in the day of iPods. They put little iPods inside a conch shell, conch shell, and just had the yep, buds like yep. coming out of it. Is that what they did? Yeah, I, I think so. It's been a long time since I've read that book. Um, but yeah, I think that's what, what it was. Cause I recall them uh, saying, I that, think they actually, I recall them saying that they did kind of, you know, rudimentary scientific studies inside their kitchen, basically found out that by playing the sound of the sea, even though the salt content was the same in test subject A and test subject B, but test subject A heard the sound of the sea and perceived more salt, even though the salt was that's right. like micro, uh, milligram accurate dish by dish that yeah mm-hmm. but it changes your perception which that's and the oyster is a perfect example because i just from personal experience oysters are very strange um <laughs> very strange to eat it really it's it's slimy it's salty um but typically people who love oysters had them for the first time near the ocean mm-hmm. um you know, there's something about just the the smell of the sea salt, the the breeze, the seagulls, whatever whatever it is. The taste of the oyster in that environment is you just fall in love with it, and 
when you're eating <laughs> an oyster for the first time in your basement on a Tuesday <laughs> in the Midwest, you're like, this is gross. I want, give me back my block of cheddar. Um, and it's, it's so, it's crazy to think that all of these, so, so it's, it's also easy to think that, okay, you know, these restaurants are hundreds of dollars a plate. This is, you know, some high end nonsense, but even in the most basic of circumstances, every other sense impacts how you enjoy any kind of sensory medium, Mm -hmm. whether it's music, whether it's food, whether it's a painting, whether it's perfume, um, you know, all of those, all of those senses can be, there are, are manipulated. Um, that's not what I'm trying to say. All those senses impact how you experience anything. Mm. And it goes back to what you were saying about how we're designing buildings. All of those, all of those particular design adjustments are trying to alter people's senses to put them in a different state of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Like that article, essentially they were referencing a study that drew some initial conclusions saying that if you are in a room that has higher ceiling than say someone else, you in that loftier room will tend to have, I kid you not, loftier thoughts or at least more abstract thinking. Like that's crazy. Just by the room you're in, it will change. It can to some degree influence I don't think we should make it sound like, yeah, if you walk into this room, you will be an entirely peaceful, docile person and anger management won't be an issue for you. Like, that's not the case. It's not that dramatic, but it can inform, you know, to a certain degree and really change a lot of things about how we experience our reality. Because I think it's worth noting that any one of us, uh, whether it's a flavor, you know, eating a dinner especially if it's a meal we had as a child, we have some sense memory from early on. It is like in that one moment, so much of your life being summed up on a spoon. Like for me, I would call it like, man, my grandma's spetzels. Like that flavor, that aroma, it is tied to so many aspects of my life that it's like, it focuses all of it in that one moment, and w- which is why it's so enjoyable. Because it's like, oh, I remember all these warm, fuzzy feelings of grandma, you know? And I'm just eating spetzels, which is my favorite dish. And it's a super boring dish. I mean, it's a, it's a dumpling with a little bit of onion and butter flavor, right? Like, there's nothing much to it. But because it's combining so much of my experience in one moment, it's very powerful. And I think that's really important to... Kind of what we're touching on here is... The, the level of manipulation is probably mostly important on um, what our past experiences are. Or at least that would set, you know, what is acceptable as far as how much manipulation in a recording or in food should be used. It's got to be tied to where we come from. Not geographically yeah, it's why- where we come from, but like, well, that would be a factor, but not solely. Right. It's It's why... So many people say, oh, nobody makes this dish better than my mom or better than my grandma. It's not that your mom or grandma made an empirically better lasagna. (laughs) It's that that combination of whatever she did is so tied to your nostalgia to um, 
you know, all the wonderful things that, uh, the people that you love, the places that you loved. Well, you know, of course the lasagna is never going to be better. Nobody's ever going to come up with something that's going to make you feel that much in a, in a taste or a, you know, a sensation experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's reflected in our modern thinking or at least postmodern thinking, um, when it comes down to media messaging, um, Marshall McLuhan, I think I'm saying his name right, Canadian philosopher, he basically kicked off the idea that essentially saying um, an experience is sometimes more valuable than the product that you buy. So an example would be you go to an Apple store just to get whatever, an adapter for your iPhone that you already have the experience of going to that store is actually more valuable. And, and the idea, if you extrapolate it, is basically will actually drive your behavior. So even though you could go get this adapter somewhere else, you would go to the Apple store because the experience of being in that space and hearing those sounds and smelling those smells, that's actually what you're going for. It's not for the adapter. I thought that idea was fascinating. Because we see it all the time. I mean, go to any American mall, well, if they're still open. So, an American mall in the 2000s, let's do that, right? Walk by an Abercrombie and Fitch, and you knew exactly what type of experience you were in for, right? It was going to smell way too preteen fragrant. It's going to be something like a club, and there's going to be shirtless ripped dudes everywhere, right? So, that's the the environment they were setting up. And so, kind of begs the question is like well is the environment what you're really going there for to exist in this environment enjoy it feel like you're part of something feel like you're connected or is it because you need to get a shirt and it seems like it's pretty muddy to answer that question (laughs) i think you would say it it in no way is about is about the shirt because logically you would buy a equally quality shirt somewhere else for half the price yep a third of the price yep yeah that gets into branding which is a whole bag of worms we don't have time to uncover here but it is interesting that you know environments will not manipulate will change how you act behave and feel and interesting peripheral Mm -hmm. sorry go ahead no no that's basically i was going to Interesting peripheral thought. Um, You know, we often say that the millennial generation buys experiences while past generations have bought materials and things. Mm -hmm. But if materialism is really a product of, you know, wanting the experience of of buying it and everything associated with that, are both of those then buying experience just in very different ways? I mean, they're certainly both buying experiences. Yeah, but what, what, (laughs) what each generation roughly would want out of that experience... Yeah, will be very, very different. And that's, I mean, that's so true, though. That, I mean, even me, you and I were, what, less than a year apart? Less than six months apart. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I'm about to be Ooh, yeah. a certain age. Yep, you're about to, <laughs> you're about to take over that clock, yeah. And, um... Grew up, for the most part, in the same town. I moved around a bit. And almost went to the same high school. Like, we had a very, very similar upbringing. And yet, I'm, I would guarantee yeah. you, we have very different sensibility about how far is too far. What is, 
What is a good buying experience? What is an enjoyable? Why would you do X, Y, and Z? Huh. That is, that is fascinating. It is, but I think we're, we're, we're really touching on almost the purpose of this, this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what level of manipulation is, is too much? What's, what's not enough? What's acceptable versus unacceptable? Uh, we could debate that forever. I don't think we would, I don't think anybody, you and I wouldn't get to the same conclusion, but what we can agree on is that, you know, what we were just talking about in terms of manipulation and just, in just hearing and just the sense of hearing, I would, I would assume that most people are very unaware to the extent to which their brains are manipulated every day purposefully by sensory manipulation. And I think at the very least, everybody needs to be aware of that kind of manipulation. Because if you're not, it's very, you know, these, these things are very, very fine tuned talking about, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch from the 2000, every part of that experience was very, very manipulated to make you feel a certain way. And if you're unaware of how malleable your mind is, then you can be, for lack of a better word, tricked into doing things that you don't really want because you don't understand it's being done to you. You think that you want it. You think it's an internal innate desire and it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a desire planted in your brain by manipulating all the things around you, your environment. And that sounds very sinister. I don't mean it to sound sinister um, because there's a lot of, I would say so much of, of pleasure is just derived from, you know, your, your senses and in, in sensory manipulation, going to a concert is sensory manipulation. And those that's enjoyable. And I love everything that that does to me. Um, the experience of going to an Apple store is really is mm, trying to think of a, <laughs> a better word than good. It's, it's exciting. It's a thing that you do with friends. It's, it's part of life. There's nothing inherently wrong about it, but it's good to be aware of it. It's good to learn about it. And it's very technical. You know, you and I discuss music all the time and we've developed this, this shared language kind of concept to, to really bridge that gap, you know, so we can talk about things like reverb or EQ or, um, the only two sound terms I come up with <laughs> off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, but I understand what they mean because while they are very technical when you talk about sound waves and how, what you're doing to it, but if you can relate it to something like food, which I understand now I understand what you're talking about. And the more that I understand about how you can modify sound, the more I understand the possibilities in modifying sound and what it can do to me, what it can do to others. Mm-hmm. So I have to go into that shared language, uh, <laughs> shared language example between music and food at some point. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Dave, 
as manipulation is going to be going on anywhere because it's humans chance to intervene in reality and who isn't going to do that given the opportunity but as we move through life and as we're there's manipulative forces how do you acquire the knowledge to move through it the best way possible 